Welcome to Servant Leadership Sessions, an ongoing series of conversations with business and thought leaders exploring the impact of servant leadership. Brought to you by Cairnway Center for Servant Leadership Excellence. Find out more at cairnway.net. That's C-A-I-R-N-W-A-Y.net. Now, here's your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to this Servant Leadership Session. One more in our series of conversations with business and thought leaders, sharing ideas, insights, and experiences that are of particular interest to those of you on the servant leader journey. We're delighted that you're taking time out of your day to listen in on another fascinating conversation. We're delighted to have Zainab Tun as our guest for this servant leadership session. Zainab is an adjunct associate professor in the operations management group at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Before MIT Sloan, she spent seven years on the faculty at Harvard Business School. While her name may be new to many of you, I'm confident that what she shares with us today will instantly have an air of familiarity to it. And you'll be delighted to have met her and you'll be eager to hear more from her. Earlier this year, she released a new book, The Good Job Strategy, How the Smartest Companies Invest in Employees to Lower Cost and Boost Profits. I highly recommend reading this book. I think it has a unique appeal to people like you and me. Anyone who's traveling this servant leadership journey. Zainab, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me, Kevin, and thank you for that warm introduction and and your good words about my book. Oh well, your book is it, it, it was uh, just exciting to read. I, there were times I was just wanting to jump up out of my chair, and I think you saw some of that when I was tweeting things that that I was reading. So, in a nutshell, just what is the good job strategy? So, the good job strategy is a strategy that firms can pursue that delivers great value for their customers and shareholders while creating good jobs for their employees. And it's a strategy that doesn't depend on charging customers more. Uh, What makes the good job strategy work really is operational excellence. And in particular, the combination of investment in people with a set of very smart choices that leverage that investment and that generates a high return on that investment in people. And, and what was it about this field of study that first attracted you to it? <laughs> you know, Kevin, my field is operations management. And about 15 years ago, I was a doctoral student trying to find operational problems that I could solve. And I started looking at retail operations, and I was fascinated by pervasive operational problems that happened at retail stores. It was fascinating that retailers were doing such a great job in their supply chains, in the back end of their supply chains, to get the right product to the right store at the right time with the right price, but they totally dropped the ball in the last 10 yards of their supply chain. Um, The supply chain worked great, but then the products inside the stores would be misplaced and never met the customer or they would invest millions of dollars in their information technology, but the data in their systems were inaccurate. 
And when I looked at these problems, I saw how big they were, how frequent they were, and how much they impacted um, retailers' performance, their sales, their profits, their labor productivity, a, a bunch of factors related to performance. And when I studied what drove these problems, I found that they were driven largely by poor labor practices. Mm. So stores that had more employee turnover had more problems. Stores that had less training had more of these problems. Stores that just didn't have enough employees had more of these problems. So, so I saw that bad operations and poor management of people were very related, and, and I wanted to solve both of these problems, both get the operations right and, and, and get the people management right, and that was the beginning of my journey into the good job strategy. Well, I believe you're very selective in words that you used when describing the good job strategy. I heard you say, invest in people. So it's, it's seeing people as an investment rather than an expense. Is that part of the good job strategy? Absolutely. A part of the good job, a big part of the good job strategy is to invest in people. And it's not just paying them uh, high wages or providing good schedules to employees, but it also means uh, creating jobs that allow the employees to do a good job, to find meaning and dignity in what they do and set them up for success. And one of the things that I am very against is for people to see employees just as a cost, as if employees have just fixed value attached to them. What I found in my study is that the value of employees can increase with how much you invest in them. It's not just a fixed thing. So investment in employees is is a big part of the good job strategy. And, of course, the other part is making some very smart operational choices that generate a great return on that investment. Wonderful. So there's this this combination of investing in people and smart choices. And in the book, you talk about how important both, it's a both and, not an either or strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as you went through this process, and I know it was a several year journey, what were the most significant insights you gained into the world of retail as you researched and wrote the book? Yeah, and I think, uh, Kevin, the significant, the most significant insight that I gained is not even just specific to retail, because it is this. I saw that the conventional wisdom can be wrong. <laughs> conventional wisdom in retail is that if you want to offer the lowest prices to customers, you can't afford to invest in people, so you have to provide bad jobs. And you can't afford to invest in customer service. You have to offer bad customer service. In fact, bad jobs and bad customer service go hand in hand in service industries. But when I examined this industry and when I did my research, I found that it is possible to provide good jobs and low prices and make a lot of money at the same time while delivering great service to your customers. So... Offering bad jobs or bad service is not a necessity of competing on the basis of low cost, but it's a choice. And there is a better choice, and that better choice is what I call the good job strategy. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I, I love 
the takeaway you had there, there that conventional wisdom can be wrong. You know, when I reflect on your book, a lot of it seems common sense. And I was talking with a friend earlier this morning about common sense. And, and the challenge with common sense is just like conventional wisdom. Common sense isn't always that common either, and it doesn't always result into common practice. Yes, you know, one of the reactions to my book has been, um, well, what she writes about is so much common sense. <laughs> of course, if you do these, you would, you would succeed. And, and it's true. Um, but it's not practiced by a lot of companies. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, companies can make bad choices just like people can make bad choices. Right? I mean, right. we know, for example, that regular exercise is great for our health. Right? If we, um, but, but regular exercise requires discipline, it requires hard work, it requires commitment, and it really requires a long-term perspective. The good job strategy is great for companies, but that too requires commitment, it requires discipline, and it requires a long-term perspective. And that last part, the long-term perspective, could be hard in a lot of organizations, especially yes. in those that are publicly owned. And as I tell my students all the time, excellence, pursuing excellence is always harder than pursuing mediocrity. So we see a lot of mediocrity out there. Yes, we do. And you had some line in the book about mediocrity that I, I just loved. I was, I was trying to find it. Do you remember what you said? Well, it might be related to how, you know, most companies are stuck in mediocrity. I talk about the vicious cycle in my book. Yeah. And the vicious cycle starts with the philosophy of seeing employees as a cost to be minimized, as you mentioned, Kevin. And once you see employees that way, then you invest little in them, both in their quality, in terms of training, attracting good talent, and in terms of their quantity, trying to have as few people as possible. Um, when you have low quality or quantity of employees, then there are all these operational problems that I studied early on in my research. And those problems reduce customer service, they reduce sales, they reduce profits. So when companies don't have enough sales or profits, then their labor budgets shrink. And when their labor budgets shrink, then, of course, they can't invest in their employees, and then this vicious cycle continues. Mm. Mm. And I call it a vicious cycle because, and, it's, and it is related to being stuck in mediocrity, because first, it is really bad for employees and millions of them who work in retail and in other service industries. Second, it's bad for customers because they end up being frustrated with the service that they receive. And third, it's bad for the investors because companies are leaving a lot of money on the table. So it's a strategy, the bad job strategy is a strategy that produces mediocrity for um, customers and investors and downright brutality, I think, for employees. So what I hear you saying is that a bad job strategy is truly lose, lose, lose. It's a loss for employees, it's a loss for customers, and ultimately it's a loss for investors, where the good job strategy is truly win, win, win. Absolutely. And the bad job strategy is a lose, lose um, 
for customers and employees, it could be a win for short-term um, okay. short investors. Short-term, yeah. Short-term investors. And it could be a win for, I mean, there are, it's, I don't want to say that you can't be successful following the right. bad job strategy. You can still make money following the bad job strategy. There are a lot of companies right. out there, and some of them we associate as being successful and very big, that are following the bad job strategy. So certainly you can make a lot of money following the bad job strategy, but you leave a lot of money on the table for investors. Okay. You can do better. Well, you mentioned this vicious cycle, and in the book you compare and contrast that to the virtuous cycle. So can you unpack that a little for us? Yes, of course. So the vicious cycle, remember, started with seeing employees as a cost to be minimized. The virtuous cycle begins with a philosophy that sees employees as human beings who can drive sales and who can drive profits. And with that, companies invest in their employees, both in their quality and in their quantity. When they invest in their employees, they don't suffer from all the operational problems that others suffer from. They have great operational execution. When they have good operational execution, then they deliver great customer service, their sales are higher, their profits are higher, and of course, when their sales and profits are higher, now their labor budgets are higher as well, which means that they can further invest in their employees, and this cycle continues. And this cycle I call the virtuous cycle, because it works great for customers, they get excellent service, and all the companies that I've studied deliver excellent customer service. It works great for investors, and again, all the companies I've studied, um, their investors truly benefit from this virtuous cycle, and it's great for employees. So it, 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 it highlights excellence for employees, customers, and investors. And that's one of the, the crossovers that I see with servant leadership, that, that servant leadership, we often refer to it as a virtuous cycle, that, that as servant leaders serve uh, someone in their life, in their organization, and when they do it well, it inspires them to serve others. So this whole idea of virtuous cycle is very common to uh, the thinking of servant leadership. Yes, I can see that. And your research was a lot on the what and the how of, of these uh, employment and operational practices of these model retailers. Did you get any glimpses into the why behind that, some of those choices, why they were making the choices first and foremost to invest in people or to see people as an investment rather than an expense? Um, so I can't say that I'm you know, rigorously studied the why right. part of it. But based on my conversations with executives and, and, and managers at these organizations, I believe that the why is because the founders or the, um, the, 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 the CEOs who made these, this choice fundamentally believe that it's a better way to operate. It's a better way to create value. They believe that investing in people is good business. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and these companies, by the way, are not charities. They're not, <laughs> right. you know, they're not there to provide good jobs at the expense of their shareholders. These companies are highly successful companies, in fact, outliers in terms of financial success in their industries. So I think they had a fundamental belief that this is a better way to operate, and they're right. Absolutely. Back to this virtuous 
just because the good job strategy is virtuous, does that make it soft? Um, soft in terms of um, like easy or being nice? <laughs> is, is that well? Yeah, in the the arena of servant leadership, a lot of folks look at you know similar practices and go, wow, these companies that that employ servant leadership or the good job strategy in this case, they never talk about the hard issues. There's not They're not really holding people accountable. They're soft in that they're letting people get by with poor performance. They're just wanting to stroke people, you know. Oh, Kevin, I absolutely disagree with that. I absolutely disagree with that. In fact, Good. one of the things that struck me about these companies is how high the expectations yeah. are of employees and how, first of all, employees love have being accountable for great performance if they're set up for success. Um, they wouldn't be delighted to, to be accountable for high performance if their job is designed in a way that doesn't allow them to, to, to be successful. But if their job is designed in a way that would achieve success, they are delighted to have high expectations, and these companies are tough on their employees. Yeah. I mean, they monitor them. Uh, they monitor their performance. They, they, they encourage them to get better all the time, and, 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 and they have very high standards. And in fact, if you want to satisfy employees, customers, and investors at the same time, and all, if all you do is to be nice to your employees, um, it won't produce excellence right. for your investors. So, so if you invest in your employees, you have to make sure that you get a great return on that investment, and that requires having very a very productive workforce. First, making smart choices that increase the productivity of the workforce, but ensuring that people also work fast, they work smart, they work efficient, um, and and holding them up to those standards. Absolutely, Zainab. So I, I was kind of setting you up with that question because that's what, you know, some people say that about servant leadership. Oh, it's just soft. And it's not. When you when people hear that the United States Marine Corps, not, not known for being a bunch of softies, that they embrace servant leadership and practice servant leadership, it is a high standard. Uh, and it is about accountability. I found the quote I was wanting to reference earlier. You said, as we all know, excellence is much harder to achieve than mediocrity. And you also said that investment in employees includes setting and enforcing high standards for employee performance. So this good job strategy is expecting more, but also setting up people for success and empowering them to achieve. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, you know, um, one of the things is, you know, you, you, you talk about people putting, you know, putting people first. Yes. And, and how they ensure that they put people first. Um, these companies have created a business model that really requires them to put their people first. And that requires them to invest in their people, and that requires them uh, high expectations. Let me give you yeah, a, an example that demonstrates this. So I, I found, when I, when I looked at companies that followed the good job strategy, I found that they were all making very smart operational choices and the same operational choices. One of those choices is the combination of standardization with empowerment. So all of these companies 
standardize those process, processes that benefit greatly from efficiencies and consensus, consistencies, but at the same time, they empower their employees to both imp, you know, improve those standards and they empower their employees to make decisions for their customers. Now, what would it be like if you create a system where you rely, when you empower your employees, what would it be like if you didn't invest in your people? What kind of decisions would those employees right. make? Would you be able to ensure that almost all the time, tens of thousands of people are making the right decisions for customers and for, 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 for the companies? It would be hard to do that without, uh, without investing in your people. And, and, and these companies, on the one hand, they empower their employees. On the other hand, they monitor whether their employees are making good decisions or not. If they're not, and, and, and that doesn't happen very frequently because, again, they are set up for success, then they help them out. They train them more. They offer them guidance. So this, is a, this strategy is, you know, consists of choices that require highly competent, capable people. And these choices, by the way, when they're practiced well, like standardization and empowerment, deliver great value to both customers and investors. And I recall in the book that you went into this a little further, talking that operational excellence can't exist in a vacuum because at some point it really does rely on some person somewhere to execute that and that at some point in that process, decisions are going to have to be made. Absolutely. And even, you know, for most people, a setting like retail is a complex setting. A typical supermarket, for example, carries around 40,000 different products. It manages over 100 sales promotions. You know, the, yeah. the, the prices of items change and requires a lot of activities that will take in place just to manage the products and also manage the customers. So if you operate this very complex environment um, without employees who are not well-trained, who are not um, given enough time to do everything that they have to do, then you'll have problems. And that's what we see in retail and in a lot of other service industries. You can't just standardize, you know, try to standardize everything and, and hope for the best. Um, you have to really invest in your people because they yes. make decisions all the time in these complex operational environments. They're making decisions whether you've invested in them or not. So the, the, there are decisions being made, and largely whether those decisions are just ignoring the customer or, you know, as you say in the book, point, hey, it's over there, not really get involved. So the decisions are being made. It's just whether or not they're a good decision or a bad decision. Yes, and as long as you have customers and that, you know, customers come in different times. They ask for different things. Their needs are different. The way they assess service is different. So employees, frontline employees, have to constantly be making decisions yes. for their customers. And, and, and even decisions for the products that they shelve in a, super, in a place like supermarket because the products change all the time. So those decisions will be made, whether you invest in people or not, when they're made by people whom you haven't invested, they end up being bad decisions. Right, right. And they hurt you in mo mm. many more ways than uh, you would think of, I think, as a, 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 as a manager. I want to shift gears just a little bit. In our work around servant leadership, 
we see that meaning transforms tasks that some people consider menial into meaningful jobs. I want to read a couple of sections from your book and then ask you to comment. I love this part. We know from years of research in job design that one way to improve motivation is to make the job more meaningful. What makes a job meaningful? According to the renowned psychologist Richard J. Hackman and his colleague Greg Oldham, the three important qualities are, one, the chance to use a variety of skills, Two, the chance to see a job through from beginning to end. And three, the chance to do something that makes a difference. And then a little later you wrote, One thing I've heard over and over is how motivating it is for them to be able to help one person after another. Though what they help customers with may not be of earth-shattering importance, Each time they can make a bit of someone's day go better, they feel proud of themselves. What's more, if they feel their employer is helping them to do this, they feel proud of their company and not only glad, but even grateful to work there. Employee motivation like that is priceless. Can can you talk about what you observed about the power of meaning? And, you know, Kevin, I'll give you an example because one of the best observations of this was at Quick Trip because it's a convenience store chain with gas stations. At first, I talked to the CEO of Quick Trip, and he told me about, he said, you know, customers don't come into Quick Trip usually in a happy mood uh, because (laughs) they're low on gas, you know, they want to buy drinks, they're thirsty. So what we want to do is to have them leave the store Hmm. here than how they entered the store. And I thought, oh, yeah, convenience store chain, CEO talking about this. Um, <laughs> wait till I talk to the Quick Trip employees. Then I talked to the employees. And, again, these are employees whose jobs are, if you look at the, the tasks that they perform, varies from cleaning toilets to cleaning gas pumps to um, managing the cash register but they found meaning and dignity in what they did. And one of them told me, um, and, and several others, but one of them I, I often um, talk about her in my presentations, she said her job, you know, her, her, her job is to, to help people see what Quick Trip's purpose is, and that's to make people happy. That's how mm. she sees her job. She sees her job as yeah. making people happy, and she works at a convenience store chain. And her job, you know, the, the tasks that she performs are not glamorous tasks. So if it's possible to find meaning and dignity in an environment like convenience stores, it's possible to do that everywhere. Absolutely. And, and that's, from our perspective, that's also the power of servant leadership come, coming to play here. You know, putting people first. So in the Quick Trip example, it starts with putting their employees first. And we have Quick Trips all over the Atlanta area. As a matter of fact, I stopped at one on my way here today. And when you walk in the door, part of that being uh, making people happy is you're always greeted. You you walk into other convenience stores and you may be ignored. And, and no one may say anything to you other than how much money you owe when you're checking out. 
But you walk into Quick Trip and there's that, you know, hello, good morning, whatever. So it's servant leadership has the power to transform ordinary tasks into extraordinary opportunities. And I saw that repeatedly through the good job strategies. So what could other employers learn from this, this that you're talking about, this this power of meaning? I think one of them is making specific choices that ensure that the job is designed in a way that could create that type of meaning, right? So, so we talked about, you know, you mentioned the three things, the chance to do a variety of skills, the chance to see a job through from beginning to end, and the chance to do something that makes a difference. Companies can, can make choices that ensure that employees have this meaning. For example, companies can cross-train their employees. And if they cross-train their employees, their employees are doing a bunch of different things. They are actually seeing the job from beginning to end. They, they, they are seeing the, you know, the, 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 the fact that their jobs can make a difference because they have a great idea of the different tasks and, and, and the end customer. So they could make smart choices that increases the meaning mm-hmm. of the job itself. And, of course, they can also invest in their people and, and talk about the purpose of why people are doing what they are doing, the larger purpose, not the making money purpose, yeah. but the larger purpose of who they are serving and why that matters. Oh, I love this. I love this. Where, where you're tying it back the. To our friend Simon Sinek, start with why, the golden circle. You're, you're going from the outside, what, how, tying that into the why. Um, the other thing, if I may, just interject here, you're, you're talking about companies make these decisions. And I understand that you look at companies a bit differently from your work and your role as a researcher than we, we do. Uh, it's people in companies that make those decisions. You know, it really comes down to a leadership choice. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, from from my point of view, Kevin, because when I studied the companies, I saw these choices. And I saw how these choices are what uh, leveraged the investment in people and how those choices generated great results. Of course, these choices were made by people. Right. so absolutely, I understand. It's just you know I'm having a little fun with you, but it is. It's you know it's not just <laughs> I'm this. I'm an operations geek. What can I? Say? That's right. That's right. You think of companies in that term, but you know when you come when, when it boils down to it, companies are people. They're made of people. So there's somewhere there are people that are studying that and they're making those smart choices. Yep. Something else from your book, and I'm I'm reading. I don't want you to yawn when I say this, but I've always thought that having a simple set of values for a company was also a very efficient and expedient way to go. And I'll tell you why. Because if somebody makes a proposal and it infringes on those values, you don't study it for two years. You just say, no, we don't do that. And you go on quickly. So I think that contributes to efficiency. So, Zainab, you started that with saying, I don't want you to yawn. Yawn? I was standing up yelling at that point. I was so excited and so enthused 
to hear someone talking about the the place of value. So will you describe for us what you saw about the value of values in an organization? Yes, and the really cool thing is those words were came out of the mouth of Herb Kelleher, who was the CEO of Southwest for for many, many years and, and, and it shows how much he believes in values. And and values I saw were really important um, in having companies continue following the good job strategy. And here is why. Because um, even if you are operating in a virtuous cycle, there are always performance pressures and there are always temptations to cheat on a strategy. When you have invested in so much on your employees, um, you can cut that investment just a little bit. Right? If we reduce yeah. training just a little bit, we could generate a great return in the short term for our investors. And when there are performance pressures, um, it's tempting to make those decisions. So when you have very clear values around your employees, around your customers, around pursuing excellence in everything that you do, then those values guide your decisions. And even when you're under performance pressure, if, you know, somebody comes and says, we can't deliver our quarterly um, earning targets this quarter, why don't we, you know, reduce employee wages a little bit or have fewer employees or reduce training, those things are off the table. You, you, You don't even consider them because they're against your values, just like at Southwest. You know, September 11, it was a very difficult period for the entire airline industry, and most of the companies laid off people. I think the average was around 16%. Southwest did not lay off a single employee because they have this value that we don't do layoffs. And they stick to that value 100% of the time. And by sticking to your values 100% of the time, you ensure that you don't cheat on the good job strategy, that you continue following it. Mm. I believe you label that values-based constraint? Yes, and values-based constraints, and I'm a big believer, based on my observations, that values-based constraints can actually drive innovation. Hmm. And, and, and the reason is when you have a performance pressure and when you're constrained by your values, when there's a whole list of things that you can't do, um, then you have to innovate in other ways. And Mercadona, a Spanish supermarket chain, in fact, Spain's largest supermarket chain, showed this so well during the economic crisis. Um, During the economic crisis in 2008, their values were tested. They had to make decisions um, that were relevant to your values under performance pressure, and they made decisions that worked well for their employees. So this was a time where... You know, there was an economic crisis. Their sales were not as high as they predicted. And they have a very clear bonus policy. If you don't reach the sales targets, then nobody receives a bonus. So here was a time where the sales, they didn't receive the sales targets, but it wasn't because they didn't perform well. It was because, you know, because of an outside, you know, economic, um, it was an exogenous event. And here... The president could have easily said no one gets a bonus because we didn't meet the targets. But when they were making this choice, 
when we, they, they were making this decision as to whether we're going to give bonus or not, it was so clear to them because their values put their employees ahead of their investors. And they said, of course we're going to give the bonus. It wasn't something that our employees could do anything about. Right. We were still profitable, and of course we will share that money with our people. So when under performance pressure they made this choice, their employees truly believed that this company has the values. They invest in people, and they put us first. And what Mercadona ended up doing, Kevin, that year was a whole list of things that their competitors couldn't do, mm. and they drove down prices by 10% within a year. For those people who are not familiar with the supermarket industry, the profit margins are very small. They are in single digits. So having a 10% reduction in prices is a huge deal. And Mercadona yes. was able to pull this off because their employees are very innovative. They, 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 they were able to find ways to reduce prices by cutting variety, by, by, by um, selling fruit and vegetables in different ways, but they came up with a whole list of things that could improve performance. That really is the power of um, the, 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 the values-driven, values-based constraints. Okay, so that is the both and. It is the investment in people, and because of their investment in people, they reach new levels of operational excellence. Absolutely. So they have this execution capability because they've invested in people, because they've made those operational choices that produce excellence. So they have this execution capability. So when there are performance pressures, they use that capability to innovate. And you made the comment when a company sticks to its values during difficult times, employees believe those values. Yes. And conversely, when companies don't stick to those values, employees don't believe those values. And it's always, I mean, I've never seen a company that says that we don't value our employees or we don't right. value our customers or we don't pursue excellence. But if you don't walk the talk, employees know it. One of the, um, in, in, in one particular company, I've interviewed several people, and I asked them about what the company values were, and they would tell me, oh, it's customer service and pursuing excellence, and what was the third one? I can't remember, <laughs> but it doesn't matter what the values are because we know mm -hmm. that, you know, when we're under pressure, we can't deliver good customer service because we have to work fast. So, so yes, this company has the values written somewhere, and employees learn about it during their orientation, but they don't practice it, so employees none Hello. of them believe it. As our friend Cheryl Batchelder, who's the CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, said in an earlier Servant Leadership Session interview, she said, uh, it's got to be more than plaques on the wall. Right, if the values or, or those beliefs are, are just on the plaques of the wall but not walked in the halls and not lived out through the leaders in the organization, they are shallow and well one other thought on this va uh, values based constraint. Earlier this week I was had the opportunity to visit the Chick-fil-A Innovation Center that they call Hatch. And you know, if you know Chick-fil-A, there are values driven company, very committed to their values. One of their values is they're always closed on Sunday. 
Uh, as the founder, Truett Cathy, said, our chicken tastes better on Monday because we're closed on Sunday. But their current CEO, in light of this innovation, he said, we're open to any idea that the people at Hatch, their innovation center, come up with as long as it's not opening on Sunday. Right? So the, the, the values-based constraint says that's not an, that we won't consider that. It's off the table. Well, Zainab, we're, we're talking about the good job strategy. I'm, I'm hoping our listeners are enjoying this conversation half as much as I am. I know the book hasn't been out that long, but what types of responses are you receiving from the book thus far? You know, so far, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I had the opportunity to present the book in front of different audiences. Um, Even some of the audiences that I thought would be skeptical um, were delighted to hear the message. They believed it. I've even received uh, notes from executives who had said they would love to consider putting the good job strategy into action in their companies. So it has been wonderful. It's It's an important message that needs to be told. And it's a, you know, it's a difficult strategy. It's not an easy strategy to pull off because it requires a lot of commitment and a long-term view. But it's a very sustainable and workable strategy, and I think people are hungry for that, especially given where we are with, with, with yes. the economy. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, we have two jobs problems. One of them is the quantity of jobs, and we all know that there just aren't enough jobs anymore. But the other is the quality of jobs. This is, a, this is a huge problem. And I think after the fast food strikes and the Walmart protests, people are very aware of this problem now. And, and there's an overwhelming um, view that we need to change things. Yes. And the good job strategy, I hope, could be a catalyst for that change. Well, we agree that this is an important message, and that, that's why we've invited you to join us for this podcast today. We're so excited to share this, uh, perhaps even introduce it to some of our listeners. And I love that you're getting positive responses, even from those that may be a bit skeptical. So let me ask a, a, a part two of that question. What longer-term impact do you hope the good job strategies has in the workplace? I, I believe I just heard some of that, but can you elaborate a bit more? Um, I think the, the, the longer term, if we, if we can get more companies to adopt the good job strategy, if most companies adopt this strategy like this, we would live in a society where people who work full-time would be able to take care of their families, would be able yes. to spend time with their children, would be able to afford to go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor. Um, if we if we have more companies have this strategy, we as customers would have good experiences when we have when we go to restaurants or or, or retail stores. And if more companies follow this strategy, uh, there will be very happy long-term investors. So I think it's a strategy that could produce excellence for not just companies, investors, customers, but also for our society. And that's where we see, again, this interconnection and intersection with servant leadership. I'll read one more thing from Robert Greenleaf. If a better society is to be built, one that is more just and more loving, one that provides greater creative opportunity for its people, 
then the most open course is to raise both the capacity to serve and the very performance as servant of existing major institutions by regenerative forces operating in them. And we believe this good job strategy is one of those regenerative forces at work. Yes. We want to see it grow. Yes, I I do too. This has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, this has been wonderful. Thank you for having me, Kevin. It was was wonderful to talk to you. I look forward to learning more about servant leadership. and, and would love to keep in touch. And any, any help in spreading the word around this good job strategy, I would truly appreciate it. Well, around that, for those interested in getting a copy of the good job strategy, where can they find it? They can find it uh, online in, 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 in most stores. Unfortunately, uh, my publisher is Amazon, and Barnes & Noble doesn't carry their books, but several other bookstores do, and all the online bookstores carry the book as well. Well, Zainab, we, we are delighted that we are sharing this journey of servant leadership with you, and we're looking forward to how our paths intertwine, interconnect over the upcoming weeks, months, and years. Same here, Kevin. And as always... We're thankful to you, our listeners, for allowing us to share your servant leadership journey with you, and we encourage you to continue serving by leading and leading by serving until we have an opportunity to connect again soon. Join us next time for more servant leadership sessions with your host, Kevin Monroe. And for more information about how to energize your workplace through the power of servant leadership, log on to cairnway.net. C-A-I-R-N-W-A-Y dot net.